Okay, you're welcome everyone to our study tonight. I'm so glad to have you. And I hope you're also, you're also very excited to be here. Um, tonight we'll pick up our on our study of the book of Ephesians. We'll be studying Ephesians chapter three. So time is flying. We're hopefully by the time we're done with Ephesians chapter three today, we'll be halfway through the book. So we're making very good progress. In Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul has built up a vision of, of the church using certain pictures, right? One of the pictures in Ephesians chapter 1 is that the church is being built up into a body, the body of Christ. And the idea of that metaphor is that Christ is the head of that body. And so it's like the control unit of the body. And the body exists to express the will and the nature of Christ upon the face of the earth. So much so that um, the church, you and I, as a community, beyond just us as individuals, you and I as a community form a fulcrum, an important element in God's plan for creation, for the visible creation, in God's plan even in ages to come. And um, God's vision, God's hope is that we will form a united body, a, a body that is that is in unison, that can... Not, on, not only is that body in unison, but it's also submitted enough to his will so that his will can find expression upon, upon the face of the earth. In chapter two, Paul tells us that um, God is not only building up a body, he's also building up a temple. And he gave us what the accurate picture of what God's temple looks like, right? Which is that each of us coming together in different geographies form the household of God upon the face of the earth and that God's intention is to is to reside is to domicile is to dwell in that temple and so there is a sense in which each of us as Christians is the temple of the Holy Spirit and when these temples come together we form we form a structure that can host the fullness of God right um, it's important to note that because now Paul begins to introduce the third metaphor and perhaps even you can say the most important metaphor for us that the church is, and that describes what the church is in the spirit. And this is the metaphor of a mystery, right? Um, it, it, it would have been easy for you to say, okay, the church is a body, so let's kill people, you know, and then we'll, we'll be able to stop the church. But all through history, right, we've seen that, like, like one of the church fathers said, that the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. It's as though the more the more martyrs that Satan produces, the, the wider the message of the cross spreads, the more churches are planted worldwide. So simply killing members of the body is not enough to stop in motion. The, the organic um, element that God has begun through the church. And of course, the church is much more than a physical temple. So pulling down physical buildings and burning them up and converting them into mosques or whatever instrument does not even begin to affect the purposes of God in a land and in a territory because the kind of temple God has on earth is a mystical one. It's not necessarily one made with hands. And so putting these ideas together shows us very clearly that the church is a mystery. And it is this mystery that Paul seeks to unfold a, a bit more in this chapter. Um, and yeah, he also has a prayer for us, even as we lay hold on this mystery. So Terence, can you please read for us from verse one to verse seven? 
For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that, sorry, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the spirit of his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be, follow, should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Okay, thank you, Terence. Um, now, several things are happening in these um, first few verses. So I, we, we can take it step by step. So Paul begins chapter three by writing, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you. And then he digresses. So he's, he's um, further down the line in this chapter three, you're going to find that he comes back to this reason, right? But everything that comes after chapter one or verse one is a digression. It's important to note that, like we've said severally, the Bible wasn't written in chapters and verses. It was, especially these letters that we read, they were written as letters that had a single flow of thought. And at best, they were broken up by paragraphs. So when we come to a chapter division like this that begins with, for this reason, we need to stop, right? We need to take a step back and ask ourselves, what is he talking about? What reason? It means that there's something that he has shared, especially in chapter two, and also in chapter one as well, that he's beckoning on, right? That he's trying to build upon in making the point he's about to make for this reason. So if I may ask, what is this reason? Like what's Paul re referencing? We were going to see it further down. And maybe if you were even paying very close attention, you would have caught it in the verses that are below. But what is this reason? Um, that Paul is, is referring to or is referencing. Because what's happening is that he's about to pray for them, actually. Everything we read up until verse, verse 13 is the preamble before he begins the prayer. If you, if you remember how chapter 2 started, right? Uh, Paul began chapter 2 by, by narrowing down to the individual believer. And his diagnosis of the condition of the individual believer without Christ is that um, you are dead in sins, that you and I were once dead in sins and trespasses, right? And that's the condition of everyone who has not yet been included in God's family upon the earth, that they are dead. And so that's already introduced to us the individualistic aspect to the gospel, if you like, right? There's a very individual component to the work of God. And, and Paul went on to say that you have been saved by grace and not by works, and that you are God's poetry and you are God's master plan. There was something he prepared in eternity for you to perform. That's a very individual focus to the way that the work of salvation begins in the heart of a believer. But like we've seen, a, a recurring theme in Ephesians is that um, Paul is, is envisioning the church not necessarily as a set of individuals that are decoupled from each other, 
but rather as, as, as an entity that is coming together so that every salvation is part of the master plan, sort of everyone that God brings into this community, into this building, if you like, into this body, into this temple, is part of his plan to make it a, a whole and complete organism that can express his will and can host his presence right upon the face of the earth. So what he's referring to here is that, first of all, the cross of Christ accomplished your individual salvation. But the cross of Christ accomplished much, much more than that. Like we saw in chapter two, it accomplished the universal unification, right, of Jews and Gentiles into one body. And so it is this reality that, that your salvation didn't end at you or doesn't end at you, that there is a grand plan. There is a bigger picture. There is so much more possibility in the community of, of, of members that God has brought into his body. This is the mystery that he wants you to lay hold on. And he's saying that for this cause, if you, if you read the old King James, he says for this cause, right? Rather than for this reason, but anyone is correct, right? So because the cross of Christ has done this multifaceted work, this work that that saves the individual, you and I, but transcends us, right? And includes us into a family, into a larger corporate context. Because of this, right? Um, I want to pray for you, like we've seen. But before Paul gets to that prayer in verse 14, he begins to digress, right? He says that, okay, um, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, so now we need to pause here, right? Because there's, there's an interesting word here, the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. So it seems as though Paul is saying that God had this grand plan, right? To, to, um, to get himself a body of members or to get himself a building made up of lively stones. And the way God was intending to, to, to accomplish that unification after the death of Christ was by extending a dispensation of grace to a certain apostle called Paul. So there was, there was a dispensation that was handed over to him so that this purpose can be accomplished. And essentially, if you and I are sitting here today, Christians studying the word of God, fellowshipping together, expanding the frontiers of the kingdom, then it means that this objective was achieved, right? Because we are not Jews by birth or by ancestry. And so the fact that we are partakers of covenants that we didn't know anything about means that God accomplished this goal in the life of Paul. But what I would like us to investigate a little is how he accomplished the goal. Paul says it was by a dispensation of grace. How do you understand the word there, dispensation? It says if you have heard of the dispensation, What's the dispensation of grace? That's a big word. Okay, I think um, dispensation. Okay. It's like an era, like um, a, share, a portion. A portion. Okay. Thank you, Golda. There's something in the chat here. NIV interprets it as administration. Nancy sent it to me as a direct message. <laughs> okay. Now she sent it to everyone. The NIV interprets it as the administration. Yeah, the Greek word used here is the oikonomia, 
that word or economia is the word translated dispensation. It it's essentially means a stewardship, right? An economy. That's actually the accurate translation of the word. So an economy of grace was, was committed to Paul in order to accomplish the purpose of bringing the Jews and the Gentiles together, an administration. So, so God committed an entire, um, an entire bank of resources to Paul to ensure that his divine purpose doesn't fail. When we looked at um, Ephesians chapter one, when we studied Ephesians chapter one, we saw that this is actually how God achieves his purpose, that he designs a plan and then he chooses men and women through history. He calls them and he, he endows them with a dispensation, with an administration, with an economy. The better translation for this word or economia is the economy, depending on the context that you are using it. So if you read um, Second Corinthians, you see where Paul says that, or First Corinthians, um, I think chapter four, that we are stewards, right, of the mysteries of God. So something has been committed to us, something of value, something that needs to be administered with, with wisdom, with intelligence, with care, with faithfulness, right? Because that thing can be squandered. That thing has riches in it, that those riches can be used in a way that doesn't accomplish the purpose for which the riches were made available. So what God does when he wants to accomplish a purpose is that he releases a dispensation of grace, an economy of grace. And I can tell you, friends, that in your life, <laughs> if, it, if it is true that God has a calling for you, you know, in chapter two, we talked about being God's poetry, God's poem, right? And those good works that he prepared for us to do before time began. If it is true that God prepared works for you to do, and it is, if it is true that God called you before time began, then it is also true that there is a dispensation that has been committed to you. There is an oikonomia, there's an administration that has been committed unto you. The, the question is, do you know that administration? Do you know that economy? This, the next question after that would be, are you dispensing it correctly, accurately? Because it's very possible for God to, for God to endow me with the blessings of an anointing. And I use that blessing to make people prosper, right? And I use that blessing to, to, <laughs> to solve people's problems, to do uh, breakthrough meetings week, week over week. And I'm squandering from the economy that was made available to me without asking, why was this economy made available? Perhaps God made all of that economy of grace available to me so that I can raise for him three or four faithful people in a generation. But it's possible that I can, <laughs> unknown to myself, even divert those resources to be meeting needs that, that are genuine needs, but which end up not meeting the, the need that is on the heart of God. Now, because what we're dealing with here is an economic term, right? The dispensation. It's important for us to, to look at it a bit more practically as we read the rest of the verses in the chapter, right? If a, if a dispensation, if an economy of grace, right, was committed to Paul, right, for his calling, and by extension, if an economy of grace is committed to us for our calling, it means that certain laws of economics sort of apply right, to that, to that dispensation that has been committed to us. So for example, the law of demand and supply, right, applies to us and applies to 
um, to this economy as well. It means there is a demand for the resources, right, of this economy. And then there is a supply to meet that demand. It also means that there is some kind of incentive. There's a reward for fulfilling that supply, right? And then it also means that there is accountability, or if you like, there's going to be judgment for, for how that entire transaction took place, if it took place under the principles of fairness, of justice, of equity, of, of, of righteousness, of wisdom, and all of that. So there's an entire economic civilization built around the grace that God has given to each of us. So you have a calling. And if you have a calling, it means that there's a demand for the grace that has been deposited upon you. And we're going to see Paul's own demand and supply, right? There's a demand for it. And if that is true, it also means that God has made a supply for you to meet that demand. If that is also true, it means that <laughs> there is reward for that exercise. And reward also means that there will be judgment. But also, there's a price to pay as well on your part to fulfill the demands of that economy, like we're going to see, because Paul um, introduces this section by reminding them that I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you. This is, this is part of the cost of the economy of grace that was committed to him. Okay. And then he says in verse three, how that by revelation, he made known to me the mystery. As I've briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. I think it was in chapter one where we tried to point out that we, should, we need to be careful not to attach an open-ended meaning. Excuse me, sorry. We need to be careful not to attach an open-ended meaning to the word mystery here, right? Because um, the way Paul uses mystery and efficiency is not in the sense of an, an enigma, you know, something arcane, something that's inscrutable, something that's ambiguous, like it's, there is a sense in which obviously the word mystery entails all of that. But Paul is saying that this thing that is, that was arcane, that was an enigma, that was inscrutable, ambiguous, has now been revealed to us, even though the mystery was hidden in ages past. And what that means is that if you're a good student of the Old Testament, for example, you would observe that the Old Testament by definition is incomplete, right? The same way that the book of Acts is incomplete. You don't need to be a scholar to, to, to notice that the book ends abruptly. The Old Testament um, theologically is incomplete, right? A lot of questions are left hanging and there is an expectation that someone is going to come in history that's going to fulfill the curses, the promises, the blessings that are written in this in these um, books that make up what you have as the Old Testament. It was it was obvious to any reader that God is working out something in history, but it was not too clear exactly how that work would would um, work out itself all through history. What was clear is that God will win at the end of the day, and He will restore Israel back, you know, to be His people forever without changing His mind about them. But it wasn't clear all the processes that will be involved in that journey. And so that's what Paul calls, calls a mystery. So for example, it wasn't expressly clear to the Israelites back then, even those prophesying how much God intended to build one body 
for himself, right? That was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. It wasn't explicitly clear. It was clear from the prophecies that, okay, God has plans for some of these nations. You know, he's, he keeps referencing how he wants to include them. But it was very mystical, like we said. It was like an enigma. But this mystery has been unveiled to us, right? Which is what he says in verse 5. That in other ages, it was not made known to the sons of men. But it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. And what is this mystery? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. So this is something that, like Paul mentioned, he had hinted at earlier already, that the culmination of this mystery, what God was working out through the ages and through the death of Christ, is that he was not only bringing salvation to individual sinners, which of course he was doing, right? But he was unifying Jews and Gentiles into one body, right? Um, and so I think now we begin to see a little bit of the demand side so of, of the oikonomia, the demand side of the dispensation of grace, right? That Paul speaks of, because there's something that he's saying that um, the Gentiles needed to partake of, right? And he calls it the promise, his promise in Christ through the gospel. He says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So this is the demand side of, of Paul's calling, right? There, there was a demand that existed, which is that the Gentiles, which is you and I, needed to become partakers of, of, of the promise that was that is domiciled in Christ through the gospel. And then my question is, as we try to decipher this demand side of Paul's um, calling, what was this promise or what is this promise? We've, we've, we've seen it in Galatians when we did Galatians. We've probably seen it a few other, in a few other places. But what is this promise that was demanded? What's this promise that you and I today can partake of because Paul fulfilled his ministry? It's not the promise of eternal life. Okay, yeah. And that promise is in Christ. But how is that promise understood? The promise of eternal life, right? How is it understood? And how is it received in the New Testament? So maybe another way to phrase the question is, how do we become part of the same body? Okay, I think he also said something about being saved by grace. I think it's true salvation that we become part of that. But it's also not by works. Okay, what, what happens at salvation that makes us part of the body? Okay, I think um, like death to the body, we have to die to become part of this body. Okay. Okay, your answer is correct, but it's not um, centering on the vital aspect of this promise. But all of what you've said is, is definitely part of what builds it up, right? Okay. So let's, let's look at the clear-cut answer in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. It says, for as the, verse 12, as far as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit, right? 
we were all baptized into one body. So the way we became part of the body of Christ was by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What you call, what you call eternal life, right, that you receive is a, is a seed of the life of God that comes to dwell in you. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot receive that seed. Um, in, in, I think, verse 14 of chapter 1, Paul calls it, Paul calls it the earnest of the inheritance. It's the indwelling of the, of the very presence of God that gives you access to his life, right? So it is by one spirit, it's by the spirit of God that we become baptized into his body. So the promise, you know, in Galatians chapter 3, I think we also see it when he was speaking about Abraham, right? Where is it? Um, yes, Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham. So this is what you and I didn't have access to, what we were strangers to. This is the commonwealth that we didn't have access to, that this blessing might come upon the Gentiles in Christ. And what is this blessing? That we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. Does it come together now? Yeah, it does. So he says that, that in going back to Ephesians chapter three, verse six, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise so that we can be partakers of the spirit, right? Partakers of his spirit. It takes us back to our study in chapter one, right? That when Paul got to Ephesus, his emphasis was the spirit, right? He, he, he met those disciples of, 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 of Apollos and asked them, have you, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they told him, we haven't even heard that there's any such thing. And he was alarmed and he was like, you shouldn't continue like this for this long. And when we looked at it previously in Ephesians chapter one, we saw that the reason why Paul was so adamant that everyone who knows Christ understands the ministry and the person of the Holy Spirit was because he's the custodian of all spiritual blessings. He's the dispenser of all spiritual blessings. And everything that we're going to become in Christ is, is, is compounded in the Holy Spirit. The anointing that we need to fulfill our destiny is compounded in the Holy Spirit. The, the authority that we need to stand as children of God, according to John chapter 1, verse 2 of as many as received him, to them give he the authority to become the sons of God. That authority is compounded in the spirit of God. And so a believer <laughs> that does not know the Holy Spirit is as good as a believer, as, as good as someone who's not even a believer at all in many ways. You know? And that's why someone has said that if Satan cannot keep you from being born again, he will strive to keep you from knowing the Holy Spirit because if he succeeds to that, this, the state of the person who's not born again and the state of the, the one who's born again but doesn't know the Holy Spirit, the difference will not be too, too much in terms of the practical aspects of life, even though spiritually one is saved. You know? So this was the demand side of Paul's economy. <laughs> there was a demand placed on him. Why am I? Um, highlighting and emphasizing this, this is that I want us to take a step back tonight and look at our own lives, right? And say, and say for, for, for the economia that God has committed to me, what is the demand? What's the demand? Because Paul met this demand. The proof that Paul met this demand is that you and I are alive today. 
we are filled with the spirit of God and we are not Jews. That's the proof that this economy was fully deployed and utilized for the purpose that God had in mind. And so there's, there's, there's a people group that are waiting for you to activate your own dispensation, your own oikonomia, so that a demand in their lives will be met. Maybe God brings you to a place where they don't know the spirit, for example. That's a demand placed on your life in that place. Or God brings you to a place where they know too much spirit, but no word. That's a demand placed upon your life. You know, there's so much that God has called us to accomplish. There's so much that has been prepared for us to do. So in verse 7, we see the supply side of Paul's anointing. And then it says, because of this demand, I became a minister, right? According to the gift of the grace of God given to me. Now we can see that um, Paul becoming a minister was not according to his labors, was not according to his intellect. It was, it was a product of election, right? And we saw that once um, in, cha in chapter two, that is clearly a product of the favor of God and the sovereignty of God in choosing you, right? And so it's important for us to always remember that our journey began with God. Before we could love him, he loved us, right? Before we could choose him, he chose us. And it's so important that we lay hold of that. If not, the father of lies can deceive us into thinking that now that we're in Christ, we need to stand by our own strength. No, what it is that is keeping you standing began long before you. And the truth is that if you're going to be standing tomorrow, then you need to acknowledge and recognize that my source is from somewhere outside of me. And then cling to that source very strongly. He says, I became a minister. I was not a favorite, but I became a minister according to the gift of the grace. If something is a gift, it means you didn't earn it. It's a gift of the grace of God given to me. But how did I become a minister? Because if you look at, if you look at Paul's history, he was a murderer, right? He was an academic Pharisee and, and one with extremist views for that. He was, he was zealous. He told us a story when we looked at Philippians chapter three. He was not the, the best candidate to, to be put in charge of this administration, to be put in charge of this dispensation. But he, he tells us the supply that made it possible. And he calls it the effective working of his power. This is the supply that made it possible for Paul to fulfill the calling that was placed upon his life. Just in case you're wondering, okay, if God has a calling for my life, in my family, in my territory, where is the supply going to come from? Paul calls it the effective working of his power. It is this working that turned a criminal into an apostle. It is this working that turned um, a murderer into an apostle. So I don't know if the contrast is that steep for you, but the idea is that if it could make Paul a minister who succeeded in the dispensation of grace that was committed to him, then it can definitely prosper in your own life as well. And then my question then is, how do you understand the effective working of his power? The effective working of his power. How do you understand this? What is this? What is this supply? Because this is the supply that you have for your destiny. This is the supply that you have for your own dispensation. Once you detect the demand that has been placed upon your life by virtue of, of your ordination in Christ, this is the supply, the effective working of his power. 
How do you understand it? What is it? I think it's more like, for me, it's more like manifestations of the spirit in your life. Like your domestic capabilities, like being able to do things in the spirit, like advancements and knowing the will of God, basically, and what to do part time and all of that. Okay. Your, your answer has taken us in a few directions. But if you were to narrow it down, so maybe to, to ease the question a little, is this effective working? Is it an external thing or is it an in, internal thing? Maybe you can start from there and then. Okay, I think it's both. Okay. I think it works in first and it's the working in that brings the outward. Okay, okay. So it means it's also correct to say that it is, it is an internal working because without the internal working, there'll be nothing external. I mean, yeah, external. you can end up doing external things, but if the external things you're doing are not powered, right, by the inner working, then it doesn't count for anything, right? Yeah, it doesn't. Okay. So this effective working, Goda, in your definition, right, is that okay. it's an external activity, sorry, it's an internal activity of the spirit within, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Terence writes in the chat. Thank you, Gola. Terence writes in the chat. It is a partnership between us and the spirit. Okay. I mean, the idea of partnership makes sense, although Paul seems to be giving the credit exclusively <laughs> to, to God here, right? This is the effective working of his power. But I think we can go with with the consensus uh, we arrived with, with Golda, right? That this is, a, this is the internal anointing that is in you. It's the anointing that John speaks of, right? In 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, um, when he was trying to warn them of deception and he was telling them, I'm not so worried about you because he said, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. And if you read verse 27, he says, but the anointing which you have received from him, it abides in you. So there is a residual anointing of the spirit that is in you. It abides in you. You received it from him. You, this is not the kind of anointing you receive because someone laid hands on you to, to send an impartation to you, even though that can have a multiplier effect, right, on the anointing that is working in you. But this is something that begins organically by the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul, Paul says it is effective in its working. It means effective there is, is, is the term for an energy that supersedes. So it, it, it's like the amount of energy it produces is equivalent to the challenge that is in front of it. It's effective. You know, so if it is if it is um, a force of 10 kilograms, it's able to. It's able to pull back 10 kilograms. If the force multiplies to 100 kilograms, it's able to pierce through it. And what Paul is saying is that there's no amount of opposition that you receive on the part of your calling that the working of God inside of you cannot rise to, to defeat that opposition. Well, like we know, there are several Greek words, right, for power in the New Testament. Um, and... If you look at here, you see that Paul has already used three of them, effective, working, and power. But the one of interest is the word translated power here, which is the word dunamis. 
The reason it's important to um, delineate between these words for power, and there are several meanings, right? Is that their meanings changes how you understand them. Because someone might ask already that, okay, if, if this power is at work in me, why is my life exactly the way it is, right? Why am I not exercising my ministry? Or even if I'm doing it, why am I not seeing results? The word power here is the word dunamis. And dunamis always means potential power. It's a resident power, right? That power is, 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 is domiciled. It needs to be kick-started. It needs to be set in motion. Part of why we come together to do Bible study, part of why we pray in the Holy Ghost for long hours is because it's not that we're trying to generate power that doesn't exist. We're just trying to <coughs> bring to birth the power that's already domiciled in us, right? Um, it's like the power that's available in your generator. It can power the entire house, but until you switch it on, it's just going to remain potential energy, potential power. So there's something that's at work in you. But the question, the big question is, are you going to identify it? Are you going to feed that activity of the spirit? Are you going to build on that activity of the spirit? Paul says it is effective. If it made him a minister, then it can make you the kind of person that can take hold of your destiny. So this is the supply that God made available for the demand that was placed on the oikonomia that he committed to Paul, okay? Any thoughts or questions at this point before we move on? Okay, so we can move on to see the purpose of the mystery from verse 8 to verse 13. Terence? Me, who am less than, than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the ministry, of the ministry, sorry, of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ, Jesus Christ. To whom, sorry, to the intent that, sorry, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose hearts at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Yeah. Thank you, Terence. Um, so we are beginning to see a little more of the purpose of this mystery, right? Which is this coming together of the body of Christ, of the temple of the spirit. We also begin to see um, like a, a glimpse of the price that it takes to host the economy of God. So Paul says that I'm the, I'm, I'm less than the least of all the saints, you know, and to me, this grace was given. This is quite fascinating to read because everything that we are sharing, everything that we call Rema today, most of it um, evolves from Paul's teachings and writings, right? So imagine that people build empires, ministry empires on the work and labors of a man, you know, then 
you ask yourself, okay, how much should that man raise his shoulders, right? At, at the very least, he should be proud of what he accomplished. But this is a, a stark reminder to us that the proof that we have gone far enough in the spirit is that we see how little we are, regardless of how much God deposits upon us. In fact, the more God deposits his grace upon us, the more we are supposed to see how undeserving we are of that grace. He says, to me, who am the least of all the saints? Do you consider yourself the best <laughs> of all the saints or do you consider yourself the least? You know, it's not inferiority complex for you to consider yourself the least because what Paul found out is that it's as though that God's strength shines best in weakness. So he says, I would rather glory my weaknesses. Just in case you consider yourself the least, maybe you're hearing all this talk about a dispensation, you know, of grace committed. And you're wondering, this looks like a lot of work, you know, and a lot of pressure, a lot of activity. And this is, I'm not cut out for this kind of oikonomia, for this kind of administration. Paul says he was the least of all the saints. He was the least. So just in case you, you, you place yourself by your own estimation as a least, and that, that placement qualifies you for a dispensation. Right? And it's not as though God is trying to make, desperately make you do something that you cannot do. No. Instead, there are, there are, there are riches that make it possible for this dispensation to be accomplished. And he says that I should preach, it was given to me, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, in every economy, right, of demand and supply, there needs to be a supply chain, right? There needs to be a channel, a system through which, through which the products can be conveyed. And in the life of Paul, that channel was preaching. And that's why you would hear Paul asking for utterance, pray for me for utterance. See, God has called us to make disciples. But for many of us, the channel through which we're going to make disciples is not going to be preaching. Of course, a time will come when we would have to give a reasonable, logical defense for the hope that is in us. But, that, but the logic of our answer is not going to be the trust, you know, of what God would use for, for all of us, for Paul, for his own calling, for, his, for the dispensation. It was particular, it was important that his preaching was, was accurate, was balanced, was devoid of flesh, of self, was, was, was devoid of falsehood. His preaching was the channel that he had. And the thing that made his preaching powerful was that it was backed up with utterance. You see, the things that we read in Ephesians that were so well, that are so well organized, you know, so such that we can break them down into divisions and say, okay, the first two chapters, talk about this, the other two chapters talk about that. Paul didn't do any research work. You know, he didn't reference <laughs> JP and T 2002 when he was writing his letter. He didn't even have the, the chance to, to get a manuscript. But what came upon him was a spirit of utterance. And just in case part of your dispensation is to preach, you, you are going to need utterance. And utterance doesn't come cheaply. You need to tarry in the presence of God for, for a layer of anointing to come upon you that opens your lips. Because the reason why we need utterance when we preach, this, the reason why we need a, um, a fresh dose of the spirit of wisdom and revelation is that we are trying to communicate what cannot be communicated, right? He's calling it the unsearchable riches of Christ. It means that you cannot trace these riches with your intellect, which is why Christianity 
doesn't make sense to somebody who's not a Christian. It's only when they come into the experience of it that they can begin to lay hold of the riches of it. But no amount of grammar, right, that you speak to an unbeliever by itself is sufficient to convince them to become a Christian because the riches that are in Christ, they are, they are, they are unsearchable, they are untraceable. That's one sense in which the word unsearchable and untraceable is used. Another sense in which it is used is that they are inexhaustible. So that even when you come into Christ, you cannot realistically arrive at a place where you can say correctly that you have exhausted all that there is to be in Christ. If you actually do arrive at that place, that's a sure sign that you have been deceived. Right? Because, because Christ is, is, is almost is, is an enigma. His capacity to bring healing, satisfaction, and life is, 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 is unparalleled. If, if God ceases to be infinite, then he will no longer be God. And so if you're going to communicate riches, you're going to need the tool of utterance. And, and the, goal of <laughs> the goal of this kind of communication is not to make an impression on men. You know, that's a lot of what we see around. People send, um, you know, quotable quotes, very nice sounding, many times motivational quotes to people. And those things are very good. But <laughs> what Paul is referring to here it's a ministry that is way beyond that. It says in verse 9 that I'm not only supposed to preach. My preaching is supposed to make men see. Wow. It's supposed to bring men to the point where whatever scale that Satan has used to blind their eyes and put them into, into, into bondage, right? Into the bondage of darkness, the bondage of sin, that my preaching is supposed to destroy the veil. It's supposed to bring clarity. Is supposed to bring revelation. It's supposed to pull people out of the stronghold of darkness. It says to make all men see. And friends, um, at the end of the day, regardless of what dispensation has been committed to you and I, we need to cry to God for the same level of utterance. Because if I ask you, how do you know that Christianity is true, right? How do you know that, that you have not believed in lie? If you try to answer the question, you're going to find out that what you have is a list of organic subjective experiences, right? And you, like, you might tell a good story of maybe testimonies that you've had, things that you've experienced. And then someone might tell you in summary that, thank God for your experience, you know? But you see, the way you know Christianity is true is different from the way you show that Christianity is the way. And for you to be able to show it, <laughs> One of the indispensable tools that you will need from heaven is, is utterance, the kind of utterance that can make men see, that can make the eyes of men to be opened so that they can see the fellowship of this mystery, so that they can see the, <laughs> the participation of this mystery. They can see how, how grace flows in this mystical body of Christ, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ. I think we can see here what we saw in chapter one, right? Which is that um, the visible creation is not the only creation that exists. There's also the invisible creation and God dwells in the invisible creation because God is spirit. That's why you're, you're not going to find God's house physically and say, oh, let's go and greet him on earth. No, instead God's intention was that he was going to have a creature that will serve as a bridge between that invisible realm and the visible realm, so that once that creature um, exists in alignment with God, God can come to the earth and rest. 
and and he knew long before time began that when he makes adam and exposes him to that test that adam was going to fall right and that is why long before adam adam fell we read that christ was slain from the foundations of the world so we can say that it was god's intention from the foundations of the world that that perfect man would be christ you know who would be the pioneer who would be the firstborn amongst many brothers and sisters and that will serve as that temple that can bridge the invisible realm and the visible realm so that god's will and his kingdom will find expression upon the face of the earth and he says that to the intent that now so this is not just a futuristic reality right our coming together as one body as a church has present implications and the, and the primary implication of it is that what God is doing through the diversity of members that are in the church is that he's showing the many dimensions of his wisdom. That's what he refers to here by the manifold wisdom of God. You know, no matter how strong you are in your personal life, which <laughs> I doubt that many of us are even very strong personally. I mean, we are only strong up to a certain extent, but when certain things happen, they quickly reveal to us that we need a body for us to be strong. The, the, the height of our strength, the height of our capacity is actually supposed to find expression in the context of a body, right? Everyone that God adds to the church, everyone that becomes a Christian is an opportunity to experience the wisdom of God. A mystery begins to work in that person's life. Through that person's life, God can bridge a gap in your own life. Through that person's life, God can bridge a gap in the church. There is something if each person identifies their oikonomia, identifies their dispensation, and begins to walk in it, we're going to see the many dimensions of the wisdom of God. So that the diversity of converts in the church of God should not be a hindrance in any way. It's definitely not God's intention, but it's a mystery that is supposed to showcase the wisdom of God to principalities and powers in the heavenly places. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus. Now, we've mentioned earlier that Paul referred to some unsearchable riches, right? And very quickly, if you read through Ephesians, you're going to find two main categories of those riches. The first set of riches that, that Paul was sent to preach about and that, that Paul was sent to open the eyes of the Gentiles to see is what you read as... Um, the riches of his grace, right? The riches of the grace of God. The riches of the grace of God are the riches that flow from the throne of Christ on account of his office as a mediator, right? On account of his office as a high priest, on account of his office as one who stands in the gap as an intercessor. That is one of Christ's eternal identities. He's the mediator between God and man. And because of who he is in the heavens as a mediator, there are riches of grace. And in verse 12, Paul says that in him we have boldness and access with confidence through faith. The reason we have boldness and access is because we have forgiveness of sins. So, so the forgiveness of sins, the peace with God that we have, the boldness that we have to approach the throne of God with confidence and the access that we even have such that when we begin to sing and worship, heaven opens over our head. That level of access is accomplished not because you did something right or wrong, but because you are squandering from the riches of his grace. 
you are squandering from the riches of this grace. So he's saying to the Ephesians, you know, as he concludes verse 13, right, that just in case you're, you're, you're experiencing these riches, just in case you have, you have known the forgiveness of sins, just in case you, you now have peace with God in your heart, just in case you now have boldness and access with confidence, right, through faith, then, then I, I have succeeded in my, in my oikonomia. I've succeeded in the economy that was given to me. And so he says in verse 13, that I ask you not to lose, not to lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is for your glory. The reason why he doesn't want them to lose heart is that <laughs> the, the opportunity cost, this is the opportunity, what he's going through is the opportunity cost of the economy. Friends, there is an opportunity cost to our calling, right? There are many legitimate things. Of course, most of us will not end up in prison like Paul because the intensity of our calling is likely not as intense as that of Paul, right? And many Christians there are who are actually called to end up in prison. But there's an opportunity cost. Many things that you might consider legitimate, you know, God will, God will ask you to release them because of the oikonomia. It's not because if you don't release them, you're going to go to hell, right? It's not because... Your, your, your salvation is at stake. An oikonomia is at stake. An economy is at stake. A, a people with a demand over your life is at stake. And, that, and based on that, God will place certain demands on you. So it's important to know when you begin to, to partake of grace <laughs> that there's an opportunity cost. So Terence, you were sharing your testimony earlier about how you know, without even praying much, you could, you could prophesy in a new way for the first time. For you to find yourself with that kind of access, it means you are spending from the riches of grace. And the reality is that if you're going to continue to operate like that, so that it doesn't become a once in a while thing, right? In your life, but it becomes your regular experience. <laughs> There's an opportunity cost. Jesus will make demands of you. And it is those things that you gain as a result of your submission to the demands of Christ that are part of the riches of his glory, right? So the riches of his glory are not as, as prominently available as we're going to see shortly as the riches of his grace because while the riches of his grace only require faith to access, the riches of his glory will need a submission to his government, will need obedience because the riches of his glory are those riches we, we come into by virtue of our submission, of our consecration to serve his will, of our willingness even to suffer with him if need be. Okay. Any thoughts on this? I know that was <laughs> quite a lot, but any thoughts on this um, before we move on? That was a lot, like you said. Something I think we'll have to digest again. Okay, that's fine. I think it's important to just note, right, the most important aspect of it, which is that there is an economy and there is a purpose, right, for that economy. And there are riches that are made available and there is an opportunity cost you know, for being a consistent channel of those riches. Okay. So we can read now verse 14 to 19, Terence. For this reason, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father, 
of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Mm. Thank now, you. Thank you very much. Yeah. So can you see that he has gotten back to his earlier prayer that he began in verse 1? You know, verse 1 started, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, Jesus for you, Gentiles. And then he began to digress to explain why he was a prisoner. The reason he was a prisoner is that there was a dispensation committed to him, right? And then that dispensation was committed because there was a demand placed on him, on his life. And God had a supply for that demand. God had a purpose for that demand um, or for that economy. And now that he has told them... <laughs> All of that, he returns to his prayer, right? He says, because of this grand plan and because of the important role that each of you has in it, he says, I bow my knees. You see, we talked about the invisible realm and the visible realm. And forever, the bridge between those two realms is the bowing of the knees. I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So, this is a point that Paul has reiterated, which he mentioned at first in chapter one, that whatever this body of Christ is such a mystical union that it, it, it has a representative in heaven. Hebrews calls it the church of the firstborn or the spirits of just men made perfect. You know, Whatever is going on on earth when we come together is backed up by similar activity in the heavens. We are not alone. You know, it's, it calls it the whole family in heaven and the earth is named after the father of our lord jesus christ it says that he will grant you according to the riches of his glory so can you see it here that there are riches of his glory now he's saying that i want god to grant to you according to the riches of his glory not out of the riches of his glory and just a quick example to illustrate that right if i'm a millionaire and you invite me to your wedding and i give you um, ten thousand naira right i'm giving you out of my millions right but if i give you ten thousand dollars then i'm giving you according to my to my wealth i'm giving you in measure of my wealth so <clears throat> paul is praying that god will not just give them out of the riches of his glory but god will give them according to the measure of the riches of his glory and what is the primary thing he prays for that flows right from from the riches of his glory. He says that you'll be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. So we see that the forgiveness of sins, right? Peace with God, boldness, access, all of these are product of the riches of his grace, but strengthened with might in the inner man, the kind of spirit that does not faint easily, even in the midst of battle, even in the midst of warfare, it doesn't come on the surface level. 
it's it's a product of glory. It's one who is connected to glory that is connected to strength, right? It's one who knows how to tarry that is connected to strength. And he says he prays for them that they will be strengthened with might. Now, this is the second time that Paul is praying for the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, he was praying for them that the eyes of their understanding will be enlightened. So, so the first prayer point for every true believer is that their eyes will be enlightened, right? That they will know the hope of God's calling. They will know his will for their lives. That God will bring you into the layer of knowings. That you'll no longer be unsure as to why you're here at this time. You'll no longer be unsure as to what giftings you have. You'll no longer be unsure as to God's purpose for your life. You'll no longer be unsure as to what direction that God will have you go. You no longer be unsure as to why God placed certain resources in your hands at certain times that you know. But you see, knowing the will of God, discerning the will of God is only the first step. You need to be empowered. So not only do you need to be enlightened, you need to be empowered. Friends, it takes strength to journey with God. It takes strength to fulfill destiny. It takes strength to stand with God through things. And so this is the twofold prayer that Paul prays for this church, which he also prayed for the Colossian church, that they'll be enlightened and that they'll be empowered with strength. And then he says in verse 17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints, the dimensions, the, the width, length, depth, and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I'm watching our time, but let's attempt to dissect this just a little bit. Paul is writing to believers here, right? So what that means is that Christ is already dwelling in their hearts by faith, actually. So we need to understand the word dwell here is that Christ will become at home in your heart, right? It, so now he's beginning to expose them to the riches of the glory of God. If Christ is going to become at home in your heart, <laughs> he doesn't come to occupy some space. He comes to take over. That's what Joshua didn't understand when, when the pre-incarnate Christ appeared to him. He says, are you for us or against us? He says, no, <laughs> I didn't just come to help you. I came to take over. I came to, I, came to, I came to give directions. And it's only in such a heart that Christ can dwell, that, that Christ can find a home. So there is a sense in which he dwells in all of us. But this is, there's a sense in which in some of us, he has a home. He, he likes dwelling where he is because we have become the epicenter of his will. Like we have become fully surrendered beings. We don't engage in activities that grieve his spirit. We are sensitive to things that grieve his spirit. Paul is saying that I'm praying for you to become like this because there is so much that lies ahead of you. He, he has tried to show you that there are many dimensions to the wisdom of God that your very life, if you align enough with God, can, can, can produce a measure of wisdom that when people study your life, you will indeed be a case study because they will see a fresh dimension of wisdom that has not been previously known. And that if all of us operate like this as a body in the world, then God can have a resting place on the earth. And his prayer for them is that, is that their heart to become the kind of place that can host Christ. That you will not 
um, <laughs> you will not deliberately involve yourself in the things that displease Christ and then claim the riches of his grace. You know, I'm forgiven in Christ. Of course, you are forgiven. But, but Paul wants that, that, that Christ will make his home in your heart by faith. And he says, I know that you are familiar with the love of God, but I want you to be rooted in it and grounded in it. We don't have time, but this is, this is an architectural word and a farming word to be rooted and to be grounded in the word of God, right? I'm sorry, in the love of God. And he, he, he shows us something which I would like to ask us about in verse 18. He says that being rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. If you're like me, have you ever thought about this verse? What is he talking about here? Because the promise that lies in this verse is amazing. He says you can be filled with all the fullness of God, but it is tied to comprehending. And comprehend here is not an intellectual activity. Um, a better translation for this word is apprehend, like practically lay hold of, because comprehend means, okay, I understand how to drive a car in my head. <laughs> but apprehend means that when my, when my feet is on the steering, I can actually drive it. You know, I'm laying hold of what I know in my head. What does it mean here, right? What are these dimensions that he's talking about? The width, the length, the depth, and the height that he wants us to apprehend when it comes to the love of God. What are these dimensions? First of all, this apprehension cannot happen in isolation or this comprehension cannot happen in isolation. You cannot be rooted and grounded in love in isolation, right? He's saying that you have to comprehend with all the saints. It means that there are some aspects of your possibilities that are tied with your relationship with the saints. And those relationships may not always be the sweetest every time. Of course, the best thing is that they're always sweet and cool and nice, but the relationships that will really drive you um, in the direction of destiny may not necessarily always be the best because, I mean, if you know, if you know the saints, you know that <laughs> the saints are definitely not perfect, right? But whatever activity is happening here needs to happen in a corporate context. And this is the vision that Paul wants us to catch in this book, that what God is dealing with here is, is a corporate house. And I think that already exposes why we have these 3D measurements. He's describing the dimensions of a house, right? That the love of God has a certain width to it. He has a certain length to it. He has a certain depth to it. He has a certain height to it. And this building that he's trying to describe is made up of lively stones. It's made up of individual saints, right? And it is only in our practical active interaction with the saints that we are built up in this knowledge. And then it says to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Now, again, know and knowledge is one of, is one of those um, words, right? In the Greek that has many other words that can describe it. But how can you know the love of God that passes knowledge? Now, one of the words for knowledge or the basic word for knowledge in the Greek is the word gnosis, right? Which, is, which simply means to know something. The same way you know that my name is Joshua, like it's an intellectual kind of knowing. 
you just grasp it mentally, right? So he's saying that the love of Christ is not the type that you, you read in the Bible and you cry and you go away. No, but he uses the word genosco here, right? Which is, which we have seen previously, which is an experiential love. It's a romantic kind of love. It's an intimate kind of love. God wants us to, to repent of isolation, repent of independence, and come into the kind of community that can sharpen us, you know, cut off our rough edges, you know, and still love us enough to enable us stand in the fullness of what God has called us to be. And it says that if you're able to comprehend with all the saints, the dimensions of God's love, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, having read this again, I don't believe that Paul, the you that Paul is using here, is referring to one individual believer. Because if this is referring to one believer, then this completely defeats the entire thing that Paul has been saying in the entire book, right? Which is that God needs a body so that he can fill the body. God needs a temple so that he can fill the temple. So the you here, because in German, <laughs> there's a difference between plural you and singular you. So I'm sure the Greek would have a plural you, which is used here. So the fullness of God in your family is going to come because there is a quorum. There's a quota of people that have understood the dispensation of grace that was committed to them and have fused together, you know, to, to strengthen each other and to ensure that God has a place where he can rest. And it's important to say that even in our small community, right, through this Bible study school of prayer, each of us has been given different dispensations. You don't have to be like me. And that is part of why I try to make this Bible study, for example, as interactive as possible, because I'm genuinely expecting to hear fresh things when you make contributions, even though in your mind, the thing may not be perfect or may not make sense. But if we don't leave room for God to operate like that, then we can never experience the fullness of all that God has for us. And I'm looking forward to a time when we will truly begin to operate as the temple of God, as this mystery, where, where the unique dispensation that is in Golda will begin to shine forth and we can, can give her the floor to bring that expression. The same will happen with Terence, with Oni, with Nancy, with everyone, you know, so that God, God's fullness can rest in us. There's so much, our possibilities change when we begin to operate like this, right? It's just that for so long, we have been used to the Superman model in the body of Christ, where we have one strong man and many weak members. But that's not God's original design, even though God can so, so many times support that system because he doesn't have an option. But you, we can see clearly that he wants us to be filled with the fullness of God. And this dream cannot be realized in isolation. So just in case you, you, you are struggling with something and you feel so, so ashamed of it, for example, and it's making you run away from community, <laughs> I came to tell you that you're wrong, actually. That, that shame is supposed to be managed in a community of love, right? Or that pain, or even that success, or that joy you're experiencing is supposed to be shared in a community of love. Because it is in such a community that God intends to dwell in his fullness. There's something that 
that God can minister to us through your peculiar situation, through your peculiar anointing. In the final two verses, very popular prayer. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, there's some repetition going here. If we, if we try to read verse 20 again, Paul could have said now to him who is able to do all that we ask or think. And that would have been okay. God is able to do all that we ask or think. He could have also said to him who is able to do above all that we ask God think, right? And that would have been good. He could have also said to him who is able to do abundantly above all. But he said to him, so he exhausted all the words he could use, all the superlatives he could use to describe how much power can flow from an accurate Christian community. That in such a community, depending on the amount of power that is at work in that community, that God can do exceeding abundantly. You see, when we come for prayer, the, the, the effect of our prayer is the product of the power that each of us is bringing to the table. So it is, it is okay that you and I come there you know, to, to be revived. You know, it's okay for us to do that. But we need to realize that the only reason why we are being revived is because there's someone, there are other people who are injecting life and power. So we need to come to the place where when we also come, we are injecting life and power. Because the thing that God can do through our community is, is, is measured by the amount of power that we have allowed to work in us. Friends, this is an incentive. This is an incentive to, to submit to Jesus, right? If, if, if God is handicapped or in a sense is restricted by the amount of power that is at work in us, then it's important for us to ask ourselves, what are the things that block the supply of power? There is a dispensation that has been committed to me. There is a demand that has been placed upon this dispensation. And there is a supply of anointing that God has deposited in my life to meet the demands of this dispensation. But what are the things that are blocking the supply? What are the things in your life, in my life, that are blocking the supply? Some of the obvious ones are sin. It's very obvious that sin blocks the supply. And so a believer who, who perpetually remains in sin cannot supply sufficiently to the rest of the body. And when we come into corporate, into corporate labors, such believer will not be able to help us achieve what God wants to achieve in that context. And that's why it's important instead of running away and hiding, the scripture encourages us to confess our faults one to another. Because the purpose of that is not that the problem goes away suddenly, but the fact that it has been brought on the table means that it's no longer hidden and the power of God can begin to flow in that situation. You know, um, another one could be self, you know. There's nothing that destroys the body much more than ambition, much more than pride. Everything that flows from self can break the supply of the spirit. Another one is independence. Like we have seen, I hope we have been able to make clear enough in our study of Ephesians, 
that none of us can, can be all that God wants us to be in isolation. Just in case you are in a city and things are so hard spiritually, you need to find two, three people and begin to pray and make up your mind that we're not going to stop praying until rain begins to fall from heaven. And if you do that, I assure you that rain will surely come. And suddenly the things that were difficult in that territory will begin to become easy because of the grace of God that is made available. And so it's a cry of my heart tonight that each of us will go back and that God will open our eyes to see the dispensation of grace, to see the thing for which he laid hold upon us, to see the demand over our lives in the place, in the family, in the territory, in the community where God has planted us. And to also see the exceeding greatness of the supply that is available to us and would constrain our hearts to come into the partnerships, into the fellowship, into the communities that will strengthen the deposit of God in us and bring out the very best of all that God has called us to be in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.